Hi, welcome back to the last episode of Occupy America Social Network, Occupy Interview. Um, the new show will be called Occupy Voices, or just Voices, um, and, and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll describe later on a program note how that came around. Uh, but, but there's really not that much of a change between the old show and the new show. Just a new name. Uh, this is the fourth year anniversary of Occupy Wall Street. And uh, I'm delighted to have our guest uh, today, uh, Patrick Wood. Uh, can you just say hi and introduce yourself briefly, Patrick? Hello, yes. My name is Patrick Wood. I have recently uh, written a, uh, a book called Technocracy Rising, and I'm editor of the August Forecast, which is an economic uh, blog. It's augustforecast.com. And I generally talk about globalization and the global elite have done so for almost 40 years. Uh, well, sounds like you, uh, <laughs> you, you also co-wrote uh, with, with Anthony Sutton, uh, Trilaterals Over Washington, Parts 1, Parts 2. And your newest book started to be Part 3, but you changed it because there's so much has changed in that 40 years. Um, can you go ahead and give us a quick intro to uh, Professor Sutton's work? Because if we don't understand what Sutton set up, it's really hard to make sense out of what's going on in current day events. It's um, uh, not only hard, it's impossible. Uh, <laughs> it really is. I you know. Just, you cannot make sense of it today without understanding the historical backdrop to it. I met Tony Sutton at a goal conference in New Orleans. I can't remember the exact year, but it was probably 1977. Uh, back then, gold bugs were in a minority. Uh, <clears throat> they were scoffed at as being co conspiracy theorists. <laughs> I love that. Looking back, I just can't. It just tickles me to death. But, you know, we were the kooks, right? We were the nuts going down to the goal conference. And uh, Tony was speaking there. I believe he had his, one of his books in hand called The War on Gold. And he was uh, scheduled to speak. And we met by chance at a breakfast table where the restaurant and the hotel was so crowded, they said, if you want to eat, you're going to sit where we put you. And I thought, well, I'm really hungry. I don't think I can last. So. They sat me down in a two-person booth, and across from me was Tony Sutton. And um, I, I don't like the idea of sitting down with strangers for breakfast, <laughs> like especially when you're 18 inches away from their face. And so we had to introduce ourselves, and we did. And uh, he was immediately captivating because he was British and had a British accent. And he's a very genteel man, uh, very well-spoken, um, just seemed like a really nice guy. And as we proceeded to talk through that breakfast, uh, two things came out to us. I had been studying in my own research as a young financial analyst about the Trilateral Commission. I was very concerned because they had stacked the deck with the Jimmy Carter administration. That is the Carter-Mondale administration. He was elected in 1976. I didn't know what to do about that. I had noticed the phenomena. I said, I smell a rat. Something's going on. But as a young guy, I didn't know what to, who to talk to about it. I didn't know if I should write about it or what. I just didn't have any ideas. But I sat down with Tony, and he started telling me this story, uh, the same story from a different, slightly different perspective, but he had been studying this group as well. Uh, the only difference it, between us, I suppose, was he was a professor, had been a professor of economics at UCLA, before he joined this, the Hoover Institution for War, Peace, and Revolution at Stanford University. He's a very well-respected research fellow at Stanford. <clears throat> and he had just been uh, booted, essentially, from Stanford University by David Packard, uh, who was a member of the Trilateral Commission, by the way. And he, anyway, Tony had been booted because he was getting too close to releasing some information about the Trilateral Commission. He was, in other words, he was on the hunt. Right. So when Tony Sutton got on the hunt for something, <laughs> he's, he's like the proverbial hound dog down, down in the bayou. <laughs> he, he, he's not coming back without the whatever he's hunting, right? Right. 
so my guess is that uh, his guess was that they, they kicked him out because uh, he was getting too close to what the Trilateral Commission was going on, and you could not have a prestigious institution like Hoover or Stanford putting out anti-Trilateral Commission material. It just was not going to fly. So they basically ruined Tony's career. Yes. He was yeah. very disturbed when I met him. He 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 was very uh, down about it. And as we talked about the Trilateral Commission, we realized we had a huge story. We're sitting on something really huge. And I said, Tony, this we got to say something. We can't just let this fly over. And so he said, well, I don't know what to do. You know, I don't have any means to do anything anymore. Uh, no resources at the university. I, I can't publish anything, blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, I happen to have a, you know, a small publishing company now. We were printing newsletters mostly uh, and pamphlets and stuff like that. And I said, well, you know, I could, I could publish a newsletter if we could write it together. I can't write the whole thing myself, but if you'd help me write it, uh, we could publish a newsletter and we'll use direct mail to, you know, market to, to people. And we did. That's what we did. So within about a month or two, uh, maybe two months after a meeting, we published our fir- very first newsletter, Trilateral Observer. And we did that for, I don't know, three plus years, four years. And that became the basis for our books, Trilaterals Over Washington. Um, the first one, Volume 1, was a, basically kind of a, a compilation and an editing of our first uh, 14 issues or so. And Volume 2 was uh, maybe 12, 13 months of uh, the second set of uh, issues that we put out. <clears throat> so that's how, that's how we got started with Trilaterals Over Washington. And it was, um, it was quite a ride. We, we had a lot of, quite a bit of notoriety. Our books sold almost uh, 75,000 books, which should have put us on the New York Times bestseller list, but of course it didn't. <laughs> I, don't, I can't imagine why not. <laughs> Uh, we're we're seven minutes uh, we've got about seven minutes left in this 15 minute segment and I'd like to introduce our guest host for this show David Callahan you're returning you've been on the show before David real quick introduce yourself please and uh, the question that you sent uh, uh, Patrick uh, to to put uh, can you go ahead and give him that question of hey piece of cake Please condense down <laughs> all of uh, all of Dr. Sutton's work for a one-hour show and give us three things that are the most important to carry away. David, take it away, please. Hey, thanks, Terry, and good to have uh, you on the show, Patrick. I'm very excited to be able to listen in on your experience with Anthony Sutton. Uh, he's a man who's had tremendous influence on many of us and appreciate it. I, I pretty much like to describe myself as just a common American uh, Joe Blow, if you will, that um, has been taking time to study some of these issues because we're in a crossroads in our society where we're going to go, uh, if we don't do anything about it, down a pretty scary highway, if you will. Um, but many of us uh, believe that there's still a, a glimmer of hope that we can uh, pull together the people to fix uh, the problems that we see in front of us. And we have to understand what the problem is before we can solve it, and so appreciative to have this show. My background, uh, from the point of view of uh, being here, is I am involved in uh, a movement of grassroots Americans uh, to reestablish a bottom-up structure uh, that we as the people can once again be part of constitutionally in this country. Uh, We're calling them Citizens Constitutional Advocacy Councils, I won't go into a lot of detail about it. Um, I'm a coordinator for this new group that we're forming, um, and it fits in a lot with the work of Dr. Edwin Vieira, which I've studied pretty uh, consistently over the last few years. So that's probably all the background I really need to give, uh, Terry, unless you want me to explain more. But uh, glad to be here to hear these answers to these questions that I was able to send to uh, or ask ask, uh, Patrick Wood to give to us. So I don't want to take any more time and look forward to... uh, talking through this stuff. In, in about five minutes, uh, Patrick, <laughs> uh, no, no performance pressure here, but can you sum up what are the three important things, like David asked, uh, what do we need to carry away 
and we'll have links, hopefully, before they get blown away for the 10,000th time uh, sure. to some of Dr. Sutton's work. Uh, what, what are the things we carry away from Sutton's work, please? Well, the first thing that Tony taught me, and he mentored me, I have to, I have to say, I was, even though I had, had pretty good background in financial analysis, he was my, definitely my mentor in conducting research, detailed research. He knew how to get a hold of things that I never had a clue. <clears throat> so as he taught me how to get stuff, and I went and bird-dogged a lot of stuff myself, he kept drilling into me over and over and over. Follow the money. Follow the power. I got Say that to, again, please. Follow the money. Follow the power. Okay. In other words, if, be a quiz. if you follow the money, you are following the power. And so his, he always picked up a money trail on everything he researched. That's how he did. He said, I... I pick up the money trail and follow the money, and then I find out what the heck went on. So I'm not sure he invented that phrase at all, but um, he, you know, about once a day he'd tell me, he'd remind me, follow the money, follow the money. <laughs> okay, Tony, I get it. Um, <clears throat> but he had become very adept at that because um, when he was at Stanford University, uh, published under the Hoover Institution's publications moniker, by the way, he yeah. had... Uh, produced a series of books called Western Technology <clears throat> in general. And his first book was Western Technology and, the Soviet, e and Soviet Economic Development, 1930 to 1945. He did a follow-on book called Western Technology and Soviet Economic Development, 1917 to 1930. And then he had one after that that was another part of the series. And <clears throat> these were the books that made him famous. There were three huge volumes and he basically followed the money and followed the power. But his, his contention in these books were that the West basically provided virtually 100% of the technology to the enemies of America around the world to conduct whatever it was they're doing, including the Soviet Union, including Germany, and so on. It was very disturbing. He wrote other books later that were more popularized, like National Suicide um, it was uh, subtitled Military Aid to the Soviet Union. But that was a series, in any case, a transfer of technology series that made him famous, and it was a, a powerhouse or a testimonial to his motto of follow the money and follow the power. And, of course, the, 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 the bottom line takeaway to the whole thing is that <clears throat> Wall Street, the big uh, banking institutions and certain multinational corporations uh, included within them, they basically, throughout the whole last century, have funded, were the ones that funded America's greatest enemies. That includes the USSR, it includes China, and it includes Germany. And uh, Sutton, I think, probably wrote more about those connections than any other man in history. And that's a good backdrop for us to study what's going on today, because now we find out, for instance, that, uh, that Washington has funded the likes of ISIS <laughs> and trained yes. people that are yes. commanding ISIS now. It's like, what? What? How does this affect? That's a hard one for people back, to get their head around, too. Uh, I know. If you go back and look at the history of it, it makes perfect sense. I'm reminded okay, no. of, I'm ahead, reminded of uh, George Santana's famous quote from the early 1900s in his book, Age of Reason, when he said that those who don't remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And we don't seem to remember the past, even when it's given to us in books like uh, uh, Wall Street and the Rise of the Bolsheviks and Wall Street and the Rise of... Um, Hitler. Of Hitler, mm -hmm. so it, it, it what you're suggesting, you know, from his past, uh, you know, contributions is is tremendous. And again, Sutton was out in front by 40, 50 years here. Uh, he was occupying Wall Street with those books uh, starting 1974. Uh, Tony, sorry we didn't get caught up to you quick enough, but it would have been great to have you aboard. I'm sure you'd have been a You've been right there in the middle of Occupy too for the four-year anniversary, so we'll we'll just carry it on and uh, kind of hope he's here with us too. Uh, we're we're about to the point where we need to switch to our next second thing to carry away, 
that uh, the technology transfer from the east to west. Uh, can you go into some detail on that, uh, please, Patrick? Wow. Well, <clears throat> in 15 minutes. <laughs> in 15 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I know. Uh, yeah, well, here's here, I got about uh, 800 pages uh, of books. You know. <laughs> we'll just skim through the high points, right? Uh, <laughs> what, um, what Sutton did, and as he... Uh, as he wrote these books, he went back mostly directly to source documents um, to determine where the money came from to transfer technology to the East. And that was, of course, follow the money, follow the power principle. And so he went back to uh, Ship Manifest, for instance, uh, <laughs> Say, who on earth would dig up old ship manifests? Well, <laughs> Tony Sutton did. He'd go to the he'd go to a port and uh, he'd say, "I want to see you know X Y Z whatever from such and such a year and blah blah blah." And they save all that stuff apparently. And he went back and he'd go through the ship manifest. You know what was on that ship and who who paid for it, how it was paid for, because everything was sent with letters of credit. You understand? That's right. the way shipping works. You don't send cash. Uh, you know, back and forth. So right. when when somebody ships something across the sea, it has to be based on the the thing already being paid for. Uh, but you don't transfer the money until you receive the goods. That's why the that's where the idea of a letter of credit came up. But that always had to be attached to the manifest. So Tony went and collected all this stuff, and he found out not only what was shipped, but who paid for it. And that's what gave him the basis for figuring out that the big New York banks were the ones that were funding, were providing all this funding. And then he went to, you know, to actually ship these things off to, uh, to like Russia and Germany and so on, China. And so um, he went back beyond that as he went back to the banks and studied the banks, and he looked for financial documents that would, tell him where did the bank get the money in other words who else was involved in the transaction was there a third party like if it was a an arms manufacturer or or some type of a technology company were they the ones using the bank to i won't say launder the money but you understand what i'm saying they they were the agents of other corporations so he went back another layer following the money backwards and he came up with all the companies that were involved in this transfer of technology. It's just that simple. Except that it took somebody like Sutton to do it. I, I would have lost heart just thinking about it. You know, I, I wouldn't know where to go, who to talk to, what to right. look for. But he had a nose for this stuff. And not only that, I guess he liked to do it. I, I can't imagine anybody spending all the, the months and months that he did digging this stuff up. <laughs> but when he finally when he finally got it all together, what what popped out at him was the pattern. Uh, that was something else, by the way, that Tony taught me was to look for patterns. He he said you'll never you, you very seldom find a smoking gun on anything. Uh, but if you look for the pattern of it, the pattern of the of the criminal activity, if you will, he said then you'll then you'll see a picture that you never saw before. <laughs> And and that proves the point. Of course, criminologists use that kind of technique all the time today. They look for patterns in crimes. To you know, like when there's multiple crimes, they look for patterns. That's how they often discover who the killer is or who the who the criminal is. You know, perpetrating the crime. So Tony was a master at that, and he he discovered the pattern that these companies were using to uh, provide this technology transfer. And it became overwhelming that it was not just an individual or just a bunch of, un, you know, like in, unrelated incidences. You know, like if there was five companies that made five independent deals with the Soviet Union and somehow they stuck it by the rule committee, the ship stuff, you say, well, okay, five companies broke the law. You know, that's shame on them, fine them, whatever, send them to, maybe send them to jail, you know, so but um, when you have... When you have a pattern emerge that shows that those five companies are in cahoots together with some some other party, you know, to 
to make all this happen as a master strategy, as a master plan, that's a whole different picture. <laughs> that's right. a whole different picture. Now you've got stuff, you know, ideas coming up like conspiracy, collusion, you know, th- those types of words. Conspiracy and collusion charges uh, when the legal legals get in on it. Uh, although so far we haven't seen anybody do jail time. We haven't seen anybody do jail time over the Wall Street mess from the bailouts yet. No. Uh, yeah. lots, lots of protesters have gone to jail, yes. uh, but nobody from Wall Street that created the mess has gone to jail. No, got about, that's right. They did not go to jail back then either. I've uh, got about 10 minutes left. So if, if uh, basically in, in the book that you co-wrote with him, you go into the, the mechanism that, that explains why are people not really aware of what's going on around them. Uh, I don't, uh, we don't buy into the, the concept that Americans are, are sheeple. Americans are not sheep, uh, but they have had a lot of stuff hidden from them. And can you kind of explain how that hiding goes along? You, you covered that pretty well in, in your original book you co-wrote with me. Well, you know, people used to accuse us of conspiracy theories like we're making stuff up. Right. We, never, we never made one thing up, not one single solitary thing. I used to just drive Tony up a wall because, you know, here you have a guy who has an impeccable rec- reputation at Stanford, and people are accusing him of being a conspiracy theorist. It's just like, what a slap in the face. What an insult. Yes. Yes. We never, we never spun anything. We went and dug up the original documents that these people were writing. We, we, the, and it was all out there. The mag, they produced a magazine for Peace sake for the first, I don't know, uh, six, seven years called Trialogue. And it was published. It was available. Now, was it in the bookstores? No. Was it, <laughs> you know, was it on the newsstand? No. But was it available if you know where to go get it? Absolutely. And uh, just for a few bucks. Um, we didn't have any trouble getting material to analyze. And then we would go out and look in the, the scholastic journals to find out where these members of the Trilateral Commission were writing articles. All that was published. All the stuff at Harvard, all the stuff at Yale, all the stuff at University of Chicago, and uh, all the stuff at the Council on Foreign Relations. That was all public information. It was just there for the taking. Hiding in plain sight. So Hiding. why doesn't anybody take it? And, and you talk about how they have uh, how the press, the main used to be mainstream media. Now we can just call it corporate media because less people actually get their news now from corporate after they've been lied to so many times. I know. Uh, that, yeah, so the media is, is not only no help; they're a, they're an obstruction to any kind yes. of analysis. Uh, so we can we can throw them out. They're never going to get it ever, never, ever. They're gone. They're just forget them. Now, I'll tell you what's interesting. Tony Sutton did not own a television. <laughs> he did. David laughed at me. I got rid of mine too. <laughs> he said, "I don't watch. I don't watch TV." And I was kind of shocked originally because we had a TV. I didn't watch it much either. But uh, you know, he said, oh, "I don't have a TV. It just it just sends you down the wrong trail." That's what it's designed to do. <laughs> so, and he. And it'd probably say something like, follow the money, follow the power. <laughs> so, so he didn't have a TV, and, he, you know, that, that, was a, that was a good thing for him, I guess, that, you know, it didn't get his mind cluttered up with all the other nonsense. But here's the thing. People, there's a, there's a great level of ignorance that these documents exist, number one. There really is. People just don't really understand that there's places you can go and find stuff if you really want to. Uh, I found tons of stuff on Google Books, for instance. That it's there. You just got to go search for it. You find it. You can download it and print it. Do whatever you want. But <clears throat> there's there's an ignorance factor number one, and the the other factor is people are just lazy. They don't want to do any real work to figure anything out. All they want to do is give, you know, give me a bumper sticker. You know, kind of put it on a bumper sticker in four words, or maybe three. <laughs> Uh, you know that's kind of the level of of, uh, of analysis that people want to want to get into. They don't want to go do any serious digging. They don't know what it is to to do a research project that takes six months, for instance, to get to where you can create a, a, a good conclusion and write about it. And so none of the stuff gets done anymore. There's really nobody. Well, there must be some. I know there's some. 
<clears throat> more every day, large, too. But by and large, they're the researchers that should be out there figuring this out. This used to be people from the press, some, some yes. of them, maybe yes. 40 years ago. But nobody's out there digging this stuff up today, by and large. And it's a shame because it's all there. It's hiding in plain sight. We do not need to make stories up. We do not need to, to spin tall tales. Uh, when we look at events and stuff, you know, they're taking place today. It's just a, it's just a shame. I can, well, I won't give you any examples, but you get my point. I, we get it. <laughs> our, our, our audience has already been exposed to uh, how much disinformation is out there. Yes. Um, and truth is so much better than fiction. Uh, when you really go and find some of these things, yes, I guess. Yes, but it's scary. I'd like to ask. What I'd like to ask as a follow-up is, um, you mentioned about patterns um, in in this, you know, continually looking for things with respect to the Trilateral Commission. Were there any patterns that really stuck out that um, maybe nefarious or in some way, you know, really show their true colors of what they're attempting to do? Is I, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but is there any anything in that respect? Oh sure, we we stated the 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 event of Carter and Mondale being elected. Both were members of the Trilateral Commission. They stacked their cabinet. Uh, Carter did with members of the Trilateral Commission. At one time, every member of his cabinet was a member of the commission, except for one. He's uh, and it was almost thirty percent of the U.S. membership of the commission was appointed in Carter's administration at one time or another. Now, that, 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 was a, that was really an event more than a pattern. But we have to, if you look back now, it's, it's why, was it, why did they want to do this? Why did they want to get a hold of the executive branch? It was, and I look at it as a coup. I think that was the, the year that they hijacked uh, the executive branch, and it's been hijacked ever since. And they've used... Uh, if, they, if they have used the executive branch to achieve an agenda, which was, like they said, to create a new international economic order, then we'll see some patterns over the years, right, over the last 40 years. Here's a good pattern. The president is the one who appoints the U.S. trade representative to hmm. that position. It's, uh, it's, it wasn't a cabinet-level position now. Now it's considered to be, but... The USTR is a person who negotiates these treaties that have been killing us, like NAFTA, and CAFTA, and the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and the Transatlantic Investment Partnership as well. And out of 12 USTRs that have ever been appointed since Carter's Day, out of 12, nine have been members of the Trilateral Commission. That's a pattern. Well, you say, well, why? Well, duh. <laughs> they're the ones that are writing the trade agreements. They have follow the money, follow the power. Follow the money, follow the power. <laughs> so you have currently Michael Froman, for instance, is a member of the Trilateral Commission. He's a, he's a lead negotiator on TPP and TPIP. He's also been pushing, of course, for fast track legislation. Then you had to see before him. There's been some interesting people. You had Robert Zellick in 2001 to 5. That was under George Bush. And then Susan Schwab took his place. Um, back uh, for NAFTA, you had Carla Hills. She was USTR from 89 to 93. She was the architect of NAFTA. Uh, everybody said she was, too. Even the, I mean, all the people in the establishment said, oh, Carla Hills is our hero. She architected NAFTA. And she really did. George H.W. Bush was the first one to initial and accept NAFTA. He was a member of the commission. Uh, Bill Clinton came along. He was the one that actually pushed it in a law. He was a member of the Trilateral Commission. And all the people that came forward to lobby for the passage of uh, NAFTA were members of the Trilateral Commission, like Henry Kissinger, for instance. And uh, George H.W. Bush lobbied for it. So did um, so did uh, Jimmy Carter, came back from not from the grave, but he came back from his president. <laughs> and he lobbied for it. Oh, this is the greatest thing you've ever seen since I grew peanuts back in Georgia. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, all the way along the way, you see these trade representatives have all been negotiating treaties. And you have to ask the question, are they negotiating treaties for the American people? Are they concerned about building up American labor? Or are they negotiating policies that will feather their own nest, whatever that agenda is? 
And, I, and again, I say, duh, of course, follow the money. <laughs> these people are negotiating for themselves exclusively with no regard whatsoever for what happens to the American people. And I say, we are living that today, aren't we? Well, even yes. thinking about what President George H.W. Bush told the American people during one of his sta uh, State of the Union addresses that we are bringing in the new world order. Isn't, wasn't he pointing directly to, uh, you know, the Trilateral, Trilateral Commission's agenda? He was, and it was unfortunate that he used the word new world order without saying correctly what the Trilateral Commission originally said, that they were trying to create a new international economic order. There's a huge difference in that. Uh -huh. There's not okay. going to be a political structure like the new world order that, that that people jump to the conclusion when, when George H.W. Bush says that at, at, at the U.N., but they really were building a new international economic order. They have pulled off an economic coup, not a political coup. That I, People need to quit looking at politics here. Follow the money. The money is wrapped up in the economic side of this. That's why they wanted to pull off an economic coup to create a new international economic system. That's what we have today, by the way, under the auspices of Agenda 21 and sustainable development with the United Nations. These are economic terms. These are political terms. We've got about 28 minutes left in the show. Uh, time to move on to our third section. Um, that Again, we, we can't stress enough that if you're looking at parties, you're being misled. You're being misdirected. Look at this hand while I'm over here with this hand doing what's going on. And that goes all the way back to J.P. Morgan figured out if you back uh, both sides of an election, both the Democrat and the Republican, you're going to win every time. What he does. It's the American people that tend to lose from those. And again, this is, this is built on uh, uh, Dr. Quigley's work. He identifies them, calls them the money power um, we don't really have enough time to get into his work. My biggest, my, the thing I enjoyed most about uh, Sutton's work is how well it's documented and how well it stands up. Uh, when he puts a footnote down, I cross-checked one. Uh, some totally obscure book called Tank Data, probably out of print for years. Uh, when I back-checked that source that he had said, it was exactly where he said it was, and it was exactly what Pages said. And it was not misquoted. It was saying exactly what he was saying. Mm -hmm. um, it, footnotes matter. Uh, what? Uh, so, so the pattern here is that we're we're seeing anybody that's an enemy is being financed because uh, you once again you can make money off of both sides if you're funding both sides. Um, can you can you elaborate on that for the next <laughs> twelve whole minutes? Well, gosh, it's almost self-evident for anybody that has been kind of watching what's going on for the last, I don't know, 10 years or so. Um, the people that are making money off of, you know, all the, the foreign excursions that the United States have been into, and, and by the way, I don't think Americans in general really ever, I don't think they've agreed with any war that we've been into since Vietnam. You mean the undeclared and, one? The undeclared ones, that's, that's exactly right. And, you know, when you talk about uh, the Iraq invasions, one and two, Afghanistan, uh, what's going on, what we did, what we've been doing in Egypt and Syria uh, recently, I, I don't think the average guy on the street uh, has any favor for that at all. I think most people see through it that there's, you know, that this is part of the crony capitalist type of thing where, uh, you know where our our State Department has gone rogue. They're they're working an agenda that nobody fully understands, but it doesn't make sense. It's screwy, and there's money changing hands in all this. And you again, you follow the money and say, what's going on? Take Benghazi for example. Now the truth is coming out. The first people, the first intelligence-oriented people that the whistleblowers early on in Benghazi were condemned and they were discredited and uh, smeared uh, as being nutcakes. Uh, they claimed initially, right off the bat, that what was going on in Benghazi was a gun-running operation being run by the CIA. 
and that they were running weapons from Egypt, left over from their arsenals and stuff, up into Syria to, uh, to support the rebels up there, many of whom were also part of ISIS. And they were just ripped to shreds for saying this early on. Now the truth has come out. Now you have headlines in, in major newspapers that are saying, uh, essentially, the U.S. trained ISIS top leaders. <laughs> the U.S. has been sending arms into, into Syria, meddling in stuff that they have no business meddling in, probably. You say, well, well who gets, where did these guns come from? Uh, well, what banks were involved with, you know, laundering the money, if you will? And who's, who stands to make the most out of this? Is it really just a political issue that we're dealing with here? Or are there other companies that have been, you know, major players in the Mideast for many, many years, if not decades, that are calling the shots and manipulating our government to get into these positions to do this kind of stuff, you see? You follow the money back, and you find out where the, you know, where the snakes and snakes are in the woodpile, and uh, you know all the. I'm, mean, I'm not saying I understand the whole picture over there. It's not my point, but my my point is, in every scurrilous thing that the administration and the State Department have gotten us into in the last say thirty years has caused a turnover of a huge amount of money. And lives. Now, and lives too, but for, you know, they have no they don't have half as much concern for lives as they do for money. But I can only say about that that I don't I haven't received any money out of it. <laughs> and and I doubt yeah. you have either. Just, you know. I I've been fairly successful in avoiding any income from it, yes. Well, okay. Even if even if they could say to the American people we're going to profit by this, I haven't seen a nickel of anything. I'm no better off. I'm worse off, as a matter of fact. But these large corporations that are working this this deal, they're making billions. They're making billions. We had we had evidence of that in Iraq as well. Companies like Halliburton. Oh my gosh, Halliburton was raking in money so fast they couldn't hardly. They didn't. I don't know where they did to put it. <laughs> they. They had to kill. And, you, and, and when you realize that a former vice president of the United States had a very serious position in that company, I know. And he was a member you know, of the Trout Auto Commission, by the way. I knew you were going to go there. <laughs> yeah. In fact, the Cheneys were so powerful as a as a family. You know, his wife Lynn Cheney, she mm-hmm. is also a member of the Trout Auto Commission in her own right. Yeah, figure that one out. Now there's there's a duo. They can they can go to the meetings together. <laughs> so so uh, we've got about seven minutes left in this section. And and again, but let me let me. It, you can't say this enough. All enemies, at least for, uh, at least clear back to World War Two. Uh, that, that's that's exhaustively documented by Sutton. And probably further back than that, Quigley's work shows it going back further than that. A lot of historians' work in economic history shows it going back. Um, when we say all enemies, all enemies foreign and domestic, which brings us back to probably the least known of the Wall Street and series of books, Wall Street and the Rise of FDR. Uh, in Chapter 10 of, of, of that book, there's an absolutely chilling story about how close we came to an overt as opposed to covert uh, takeover of the government. Can you kind of talk about that for the whole six or so minutes we've got wow. in this segment? Yeah, of which now state your question again. I didn't quite get the whole gist of it. Uh, well, he, he uh, set in, uh, in Wall Street and the rise of FDR. Yes. talks about the coup that uh, yes. uh, Smedley but. Smedley Butler, who a lot of people have heard of, War is a Racket. Right, right. Um, uh, uh, Sutton documented, well, a lot of the details on that coup that aren't in Smedley Butler's uh, work. And BBC has recently, there'll be a link on it till he gets blown away, uh, BBC recently confirmed what Sutton was saying in Chapter 10. Yes. Um, so could you uh, give us... Could you go into a little bit detail on that, how close we came then? 
as an well, overt takeover? What, what yeah, I know what we um, what we saw back then. This was uh, I believe I want to say in 1934. Uh, most of that story took place during 1934. And there was a plot to uh, displace Roosevelt and declare a dictatorship. And uh, there was to be military uh, involved in it. Uh, I don't know if they ever had all the people lined up per se, but the plot was exposed, and the uh, it, it failed. And as a result, it failed. But what's, what was interesting to me as I as I looked at that chapter again was that it reminded me also that in those days when the technocracy movement in America was in its full bloom, there was a call for, there, there was an actual book written, uh, Technocracy and FDR, I think it was called. And that book called for Roosevelt to set himself up as dictator and to implement technocracy, which is a new economic system back then. Um, so this wasn't the only plot or maybe the two plots are connected. It's, I don't know. But there have been what I, uh, I call frontal approaches, like you know frontal assaults um, on our government. And that was one. There, you can't get more frontal than trying to have a coup and set up a dictatorship. That's pretty frontal. Well, what Sutton and I discovered in the late 70s, as we went back and started looking at, at these things in history, Richard Gardner wrote an article in 1974. He was one of the architects of the New International Economic Order. He, he's a scholar. He was an academic. He wrote an article called The Hard Road to World Order. It appeared in Foreign Affairs magazine, but since he was a member of the Trilateral Commission, we figured that was very authoritative. Um, to, to get a mind, you know, find out where their mind was. And here's, I just want to read what he wrote because um, you, you'll get an idea of what, of why the Trilateral Commission did what it did. He wrote this. He said, in short, the House of World Order would have to be built from the bottom up rather than from the top down. Mm. It will look like a great booming, buzzing confusion, to use William James' famous description of reality. But an end run around national sovereignty, eroding it piece by piece, will accomplish much more than the old-fashioned frontal assault, close quote. Now, I, I believe that, that this was one thing he might have been looking back at. I think there were probably several others in the interim. That a frontal assault was attempted and failed. Because somebody was vigilant, because there was a whistleblower, uh, who knows what, you know, but the plots were exposed and the plots failed. And I think after a number of repeated failures that they, uh, they, got, they got wise, they said, let's, let's not do this anymore. We're not getting anywhere. It's been 75 years now. <laughs> and... We've done our best to take this whole thing over, and we have we missed it. Let's try another approach, and that's when Gardner's "Hard Road to World Order" article appeared, and I think it hit the nail right on the head. I really do, and that's why the Trilateral Commission has taken a different approach since then. Do trilaterals uh, overtly in in what you guys have documented? Uh, they seem to be at war against the United States Constitution, against American sovereignty, the, the oh. ability of Americans to make their own decisions. Oh, absolutely there are. There's no respect for the Constitution whatsoever. They hate it, if anything. And that's been that's clear. It's gone back all the way to the writings of Zbigniew Brzezinski in 1970 in his book Between Two Ages. Total disdain for the U.S. Constitution. Wanted nothing to do with it. Said, In fact, <clears throat> I'll tell you what, if you ever wanted an argument against CONCON, that is a constitutional convention, it was Brzezinski who originally called for CONCON. Oh, great. The well, there's one person, I didn't know. The second person that ever called for it was Henry Kissinger. Oh, outstanding. That, <laughs> there's two, two, <laughs> two well, aces and, for sure. That's all and I that need quote, to know. 
that, that quote that I learned from you from Brzezinski in his book Between Two Ages where he said the nation state as a fundamental unit of man's organized life has ceased to be the principal creative force. Mm-hmm. It's essentially saying that our general, our form of government under the Constitution is no longer the principal creative force of society. That's right. It's useless and meaningless. And we see this today. <clears throat> we see this today. That and, and I say the pattern here is the proof that the executive branch has been co-opted or hijacked, whatever, because according to their original program, what they had to do in order to get to their end goal, their end game, was to render Congress nullified, neutered. <laughs> neutered is a good word. I won't go any further than that, but some people some people suggest that Congress doesn't have any cojones, <laughs> right? But Congress has been neutered; they're impotent. They 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 can't you know the they can't rein in the executive branch at all. They've tried and failed every every time they've tried, they failed. And basically, the attitude we get from President Obama is: is I have a I have a pen and a phone. I'll do what I darn well please. I and again, don't look at Democrat or Republican. That's no. a distraction. It's That's a distraction. All of money. This is this is all they've co-opted both political parties for at least forty years, and probably more. But I, I can document it back to forty years, especially with the uh, with the uh, with uh, Jimmy Carter and Walter Mondale coming in. They, they were just dominated by it. And Brzezinski later wrote, "This was after we wrote our book." Brzezinski uh, bragged. That he had picked, handpicked Carter for the presidency. He said he wrote about it, and it was, it was amazing. When we suggested it in our book back in '78, oh, you conspiracy theorists, that's nonsense. Brzezinski didn't pick him. You know, oh, the uproar. <laughs> you know, we just we just sat back and at first we grit our teeth, and then we just smiled because we knew we were right. <laughs> we had you- the proof. But you, you said you have a you you really have a, a dream that that you and and uh, Tony Sutton could stand up on a stage today. If you could say that again, what would be your message to the audience? I know this is this is totally facetious and it's never going to happen because I just don't <laughs> no. know. But I I'll tell you what I'd like to tell the American people for all the times they did not listen to us back then. All I can, all I would say to them now, and I think Tony probably would say it at least once with me, is we told you so. Well, uh, we've got uh, 12 minutes left, and your, I guess, latest article, um, you have a warning once again, hopefully, which won't be ignored this time. Um, imminent demise of democracy, uh, and and this is set up by yesterday in a press conference. Uh, the president said he anticipates uh, finishing up the uh, Trans-Pacific deal uh, by the end of the year. So two two months and a couple of days uh, to try to stop this if they pull their usual trick of just railroading it through. Um, what, your your latest book is Technocracy. Uh, can you talk about it? And and again, we'll we'll be bringing you back yeah. so that we can talk about more current events than the last century, but you have to remember, you have to be able to take a look at the pattern here. Yes. Um, yes. Well, Technocracy Rising, the subtitle, The Trojan Horse of Global Transformation, proposes that the new international economic order declared by the Trilateral Commission, the word new really referred to technocracy from the 1930s. And we could assent to say it's, you know, talk in terms of neo-technocracy today, new technocracy. But it's basically the same stuff we saw back in the 1930s. And they brought the, the Trilateral Commission picked this up, thanks to Brzezinski, uh, I do believe. And they have been implementing, methodically implementing this new international economic order ever since. <clears throat> they want to destroy capitalism and free enterprise, and they want to uh, substitute technocracy. It's a resource-based economic system that does not rely on supply and, de- supply and demand at all. It does not rely on free market forces to determine what the economy will make and won't make and how it will grow or not grow. 
but rather it, it, it intends to use uh, energy as a form of currency to regulate the economy. And so when the Trilateral Commission set out to do this, somewhere along the way, probably just long about mid-1980s, they passed the whole thing off to the United Nations. Of course, the Rockefellers have had a very tight relationship with the United Nations ever since it was founded. In fact, the Rockefeller family gave the land to the United Nations upon which the building sits today. Mm-hmm. So they've had a very close relationship. But they handed the whole business of technocracy off to the United Nations. <clears throat> they changed the name to protect the innocent, so to speak, and they called it Sustainable Development. And then in 1992, that was morphed into Agenda 21 at the Earth first, first Earth Summit that was held in Rio de Janeiro. And the United Nations ever since has been promoting sustainable development all over the world, including in the U.S. of A. And people have scoffed at that idea, oh, you know, new international economic order, give me a break, you know, that's that's a myth. Well, let me tell you about the myth. Earlier this year, of course, this was two months after my book went to print. It's that figures, right? The good stuff always comes out two months after you publish a book. <laughs> but, but here's what the head of climate change said at the United Nations in a press conference in Europe. She said, and I quote, this is the first time in the history of mankind that we are setting ourselves the task of intentionally, within a defined period of time, to change the economic development model that has been reigning for at least 150 years since the Industrial Revolution, close quote. Now, she, she alluded to it again in another statement a little bit further on. She said, this is probably the most difficult task we've ever given ourselves, which is to intentionally transform the economic development model for the first time in human history. Oh, it's interesting. Okay, so you see the United Nations now has declared war on capitalism and free enterprise. It's war. It's economic war. They're intending to completely do it in and replace it with sustainable development. Now this smacks of Trilateral Commission skulldudgery in my view. <laughs> This is the new international economic order, folks. This is what they talked about in 1973. And now the cat comes out of the bag. It's official. Capitalism is on the way out. These people are going to force it out. Then they're going to force in their system of sustainable development, which is a resource-based economic model. And they have a timeline to do it. <laughs> this is the this is more disturbing. Six minutes Six they, minutes left. They have a timeline, and their timeline fits right into what we're going through right now. Because on the 25th of September, the United Nations is meeting in New York City. That's where the UN's headquarters is. Uh, Pope Francis is coming to do the keynote speech to kick it off on the 25th. He's going to bash capitalism. He's going to present his his new encyclical on climate change, and he's going to praise the United Nations for sustainable development all around the world. And and again, we can't say this clear enough. This is not capitalism that they're advocating. This is what Quigley would have called monopoly capitalism, or what 300 years ago would be mercantilism. That's right. It's even worse than that because capital, as we understand it today, is non-existent in a technocracy system. Capital is not there, so you can't really call it capitalism. You can call it resourcism, perhaps. But what these people are after, what they're after the resources of the world, guys. They're, they're not after the money anymore. They're after the resources. And the resources is always where the wealth of the world has been measured. How much land do you own? How many trees do you have? How much gold do you have in the ground? Do you have oil wells? Do you raise a thousand cattle on a thousand hills, or what? The land is oh, the resources of the world have always produced the wealth of generations. 
not just the it's not just what we call capital, the dollars, the fiat money that we have. The fiat money could go up and smoke any day, and your money you could have a billion dollars in the bank, and the bank could go out of business. You lose everything, and you say, well, were you really wealthy in the first place, or did you just have a billion dollars of paper sitting, you know, sitting in the bank? Well, that's all you had. It's just paper. It's transitory. But the real wealth of the world is in the resources of the world, and that's what these people are trying to get their hands on once and for all to capture all of the meaningful resources, the economic development resources in the world, and take it away from you and me, take it away from countries, that is, denationalize it like they're doing in Greece, denationalize it and force it to be sold into other people's hands, about four minutes left. Uh, the Trans-Pacific going to be a, a if Trans-Pacific is passed, is that is that doing exactly what we're talking about here, taking away it the is. power of the American people? It is. Eighty percent of TPP so far has been identified as regulatory in nature and has nothing to do with trade. This and we still why, haven't seen the whole document. We don't is, know what they're signing. That's right. Some people have seen the whole document. I've actually talked to some who ha- uh, one who has, and they can't take notes and they can't take pictures and they can't take photographs, right? But they can, you know, they can allude to it. And um, the document is only about 20% about trade, and the rest of it has to do with harmonizing regulations between countries and between regions. And We're this, seeing. Re- Go ahead. This is uh, what it's all about. This is what these countries have been all about is harmonizing regulations throughout the world so the rules that they put in place will interoperate no matter where they go. We're seeing optimistic... United States. Pardon? Say again, David. Including us in the United States. In other words, that the same rules that would apply in uh, some country in the middle of Africa would apply here. That's exactly right. And even... Even a Supreme Court justice, I can't remember which one it was, one of the ones that aren't talked about very much, a Supreme Court justice just wrote an article and said how important international law was to to U.S. law. You can see it it coming. You can just see this freight train coming at us. If we can't stop this train wreck, we're seeing seeing resistance building all across the world. There were uh, pretty good-sized... protests against Trans-Pacific in New Zealand. They've still got great spirit down there. Uh, we're seeing uh, the resurgence of the Labor Party in Great Britain. We'll have a link on it, yeah. uh, where they're saying no longer will the Bank of England um, be able to control interest rates, and that's striking at the heart of the beast. In the last two minutes, uh, what what are the American efforts to resist, even if they do pass this, um, David, uh, supreme law of the land is a, is a, is a signed uh, treaty. Uh, a signed treaty is considered to be the supreme law of the land unless it violates the Constitution itself, and that could be pretty well argued. I think in this case, the goodness is, and I, you know, I keeping in the tone of what Patrick is saying, he's got some resources. Uh, that he's put out there uh, for us to get the people from the grassroots, ground-up level to participate, and that's really where our answer has to be is from the bottom up. And so, uh, you know, we're very excited to be talking of uh, a working relationship with Patrick and some of his ideas. And, Patrick, would you share for a moment with us what tools you have available for the people to help us to uh, begin to fix some of these problems, your statement in your interview with John B. Wells, that uh, this has to be local, I think, is critical to the whole answer. Yes, local action is the only course of action. It's the only course of action at this point. I wish it weren't so, but it is. And so we need to take what we can. And, uh, you know, I look at the local communities as being like the immune system to your body. It's like the immune system for our country. And if we're going to build up any immunity to this garbage, we need to clean up our local communities. Agenda 21 is sustainable development has penetrated us to the deepest level. We can get our hands on people at the local level to go, you know, nose-to-nose confrontation sort of thing to either get people to repent or get them out of our government in the first place. These people and that's it. 
That's it. We're that's we're it. out of time oh. <laughs> uh, for this show. <laughs> that's it, and that's it. <laughs> uh, but we hopefully we'll be back with part two of this show, so we can explain some more. Uh, again, we were back in ancient history. It seems like, but you have to know where we've been to see where we're going. Um, any last give that thoughts? website real quick. The website I think is important for people to know about Patrick. Localactivist.net. Localactivist.net. We'll have a link to that till it goes bye-bye. Um, guys, I, I can't begin to thank you enough. Thank you for celebrating the fourth anniversary of Occupy Wall Street. Um, it, thanks for standing, guys. 